0: to the conversation here on Hawaii Public Radio. I'm Catherine Cruz. The state's number one economic driver is under scrutiny following the cancellation of a request for proposal and contract award for a lucrative marketing and management contract by Mike McCartney. The former head of the uh, Department of Business and Economic Development and Tourism made the move minutes before his term ended last week, shocking the two bidders, the Hawaii Visitors and Convention Bureau and the Council for Native Hawaiian Advancement. And while lawmakers had McCartney on the hot seat last week, yesterday it was the Hawaii Tourism Authority that was grilled about its part in the debacle. A second day of questioning by state senators on the powerful money committee uncovered serious missteps, including asking a bidder embroiled in the controversial uh, contract to sponsor a reception for the Hawaii Tourism Authority's conference last week. HTA admitted it was a bad move. And lawmakers on the Ways and Means Committee questioned if the authority was following its own rules, which senators discovered aren't posted online. This morning, we talked to State Senator Donovan Dela Cruz, who, along with other senators, were also taken aback when HTA head John DeFree suggested that the agency once again be exempted from state procurement law.
1: Well, I think the committee was a little bit surprised by that statement. You know, you don't try to get your way out of a mess by creating an exemption for yourself. The reality is if they had just checked with the the state procurement officer and the attorney general from the beginning and included them, they would have been um, a lot better off. We probably would have saved a lot of time and money and effort. I know that would have been the case, especially for all the contractors who applied.
0: There were some serious issues that came up. The line of questioning that the senators took had to do with whether the HTA board was following their own
2: rules. Processes.
0: Yes. I mean, uh, you know, my understanding, you know, from what I saw yesterday was that whenever there's an extension, if it's more than uh, a certain amount, that the full board has to vote on it.
1: Yeah, that's correct. So if it's more than 250000 the entire board has to support any type of contract. If it's less than 250000 the board chair can sign along with the executive director. But those processes weren't followed either. So I, I, a lot of there's a lot of angst in the committee because it doesn't seem like there's consistency. No one's really mining the store and making sure that processes are followed so that, that there's going to be more transparency. The, the rules are not on, online. Yes, um,
0: that was another surprise board, because then it's hard to keep them accountable if you don't even know what lane they're supposed to stay in.
1: Yes. And, you know, their excuse was, oh, we, we never thought about putting it online. I mean, now I, I'm not sure if that's going to have to be something that we require of all our agencies. So that the public, the legislature, even the administration knows uh, what kind of purview they have, what kind of authorities they have, what kind of authorities they don't have.
0: What does this mean going forward?
1: Well, you know what got kind of sticky was the fact that the previous DBED director and HTA kept going back and forth in delegating and not delegating, taking back uh, procurement powers. And that wasn't clear to us at all. And. Uh, They did it in a way that really, really pushes the envelope with the law. The State Procurement Office doesn't seem to think that it was done properly. That doesn't mean that it was illegal. So that's something that we're going to have to fix. So we're going to be looking at procurement laws, making sure that we can tighten some of that up. I also think that there's a major rehaul and reorganization of how we approach tourism. If the DBED director is basically doing all the contracting for HTA, Then I'm not sure the purpose of HTA or the board. You know, we may have to look at going back to what it was previously, where it was a division under DBED, because that seems to have had more oversight and transparency.
0: So, the future of HTA really in question at this point?
1: Yeah, especially since we're talking about, you know, the state's largest industry. Uh, We're talking about $40 million worth of contracts yesterday, and no one has any idea of what happened, how it happened internally. That, that's very uh, frustrating for, for a lot of us. We feel like there, there could be a lot more transparency if there's some type of overhaul.
0: State lawmakers cut the funding uh, you know, because of, of concerns that you had. And I believe what uh, during that hearing, HTA is overdue for uh, or is due for a, an audit?
1: Yeah, so their audit is every five years. So they, they're not going to be audited till 2023. And the funding was actually reallocated last year. The governor had vetoed the bill that the funding was in. So the, the legislature did provide $60 million worth of general fund. When, when the governor vetoed that bill, uh, the governor's option was to then provide ARPA funds to HTA. The ARPA funds don't expire till 2026. And so the new governor can still use ARPA funds until a, a new budget is passed. Okay. Uh, but it's going, to be, it's going to be very interesting to see uh, what happens because HDA still wants to try to do some kind some reorganization. You know we're still not sure where destination management and marketing begins and ends. Uh, you know, the Japan contract went through quite quickly. It's, I think it was very extremely expedited and then it, it got awarded. and then now you have the North American contract taking several almost two years in the making to try to award a contract. So that's problematic.
0: It seems that HTA has had this revolving door with its uh, procurement person. And, you know, lots of questions have been raised, not just about, you know, those contracts you mentioned, but I believe the RFP for the sports contract was also canceled and is going to have to be rebid. You know, so it just raises a lot of questions about what exactly is going on.
1: Yeah, and their approach was, it seems to me, that they want to learn by trial and error. Their rationale is, well, we're learning every time we do this. So... I don't know if that's in the best public interest. You know, we really should have just brought in the state procurement officer and the attorney general a lot closer to making making sure that the process uh, was going to be a lot cleaner so we could get these contracts out.
0: You know, at one point in the hearing, the uh, attorney general was kind of limited by what they could say. I mean, the the lawmakers, you know, just asked, could they uh, DBED and HTA waive well, what is the term? Attorney-client privilege. Yes, attorney-client privilege, which they did. Talk about that frustration in trying to understand what legal advice they were given.
1: Yeah, you know, what I didn't appreciate was how HTA played it cute. The HTA board and the HTA staff, where they would their response to us many times would be, well, we included the state procurement officer and the attorney general. And they kept saying that, um, that they, were, they were included along the process. But when you ask the state procurement officer, and she's, her response was, well, they included me on only certain components, not not the entire process. They had very specific questions. When we asked the attorney general, what they would say, Well, because of attorney client privilege, we can't answer. So then it just it became like natural response for H T A to just say that so they would they wouldn't have to answer the question.
0: You know, one thing that did come out during the line of questioning was that the rules changed. From the first time the contract the RFP went out and the second time oh, Senator okay. yeah. Glenn Wakai so, had raised some questions yeah. about what was omitted.
1: Yeah, so the first RFP was different from the second RFP by about five hundred words. And the senators had asked what was changed and why was it changed? And there were components of it that the HDA staff could Rattle off and they knew. And then there were other components that uh, we had a very, very hard time getting an answer as to why they were either changed, omitted, deleted from the first RFP. And we're still waiting for a response from them as to why those changes were made.
0: If you can explain that, what Yeah, what
1: yeah his so Some points? of it was just boilerplate language in regards to did you have contracts with the state in the past uh, did you default on any of these contracts? You know th- that was those were the type of questions that were missing that were in the first RFP versus the second one.
0: Why is that important?
1: I think that, the, that those boilerplate questions are there for a reason, um, and that's something that I think all contracts have or all RFPs have. And we we wanted to find out why were they omitted in the second RFP, and we couldn't quite get an ex- an answer or an explanation as to why.
3: Is the
0: thinking that perhaps those answers? would reflect negatively on the council?
1: I'm not sure, um, and I don't think that that's the case, because we, in the, you would assume that in the second RFP, you're not sure who's going to apply. The, the issue with, with, with how this is being conducted is as soon as the, the contract has been awarded, all the proposals are made public. And so every time you go back to, to opening up the contract or canceling the contract and sending out another RFP, New bidders can see the proposals of H B C B, of CNHA, and other other contractors who try to get the bid, and use that information for their new proposal. And that, you know, that's something that contractors put in I mean, hundreds of hours, hundreds of thousands of dollars to get that kind of proposal correct and try to be competitive. And they're basically give that information is being given away for free to new bidders, potential new bidders.
0: And so the concern then going forward. I mean, you know, HTA has a meeting next
1: week. You know, if this were the private sector, heads would roll, and it doesn't seem like there's any kind of consequence. And these problems have to get fixed sooner rather than later. And saying I don't know is, is really not an excuse that should be unacceptable. You know, or as we're going, we're learning as we're going along, especially since we have the resources and the expertise within the state with the state procurement officer and the attorney general to get these things right the first time.
0: You know, I think the concern is that if you look at the optics, you want to make sure that the process is sound and that, you know, there isn't a fix, that there isn't some attempt to try and, you know, dole out these contracts to, you know, uh, people's friends.
4: (laughs)
1: Yeah.
0: And I I guess that's, I don't know, to me, that just seems to be, you know, front Mm. and center. You know, I don't care who gets the contract, but it was the process sound.
1: Senator Kim and others brought that up yesterday. Mm -hmm. Is the fact that a contract, an award and and an RFP can be pulled back just because the director may not like who got the award. And that seems to be the perception. I'm not saying that's the reality, but that seems to be the perception. That every time the contract was awarded, there was a protest. They didn't like it. Without the rationale as to why they, they canceled the contract and pulled back the RFP, other than uh, some blanket in. We don't know why they did that. Mm-hmm. And they did it, most, it, it was done multiple times. And I think that that was a concern of, of many on the committee.
0: I know it's a new board. There's a, a, a different you know, person at the helm at HTA.
1: No, there's only a couple new board members. Much uh, more, majority of them have been there for quite some time.
0: Well, I, I guess the, the, the concern is, do you think maybe some of this was going on
1: previously? Well, that was what, we are definitely concerned about, especially when they had the exemption. So when you have right. the exemption and there's no procurement law, they do whatever. We're they not want. sure if any kind of you know improper types of awarding was going on. We we feel that because they no longer have the exemption, it's become more transparent. And yet, despite that, we're still seeing some some inconsistencies, some abnormalities in the process. Well, I mean, I think there's a lot of disappointment in the board and the staff because actions were taken that were not proper and it wasn't just once, it was, mm-hmm. it was multiple times in regards to the extension of the HBCB contract, uh, in regards to the board being totally aloof and, and not included in any of the, the discussions as to what would happen once the protests occurred. Uh, we're still not sure as to how that happens when the DBEDT director can just pull back authorities with, and not include the, the agency at all. And and have that kind of decision making. So, there's probably going to be some legislation to try to clean up some of this. You know, the other thing I found a little peculiar was when uh, Senator Rakai had asked HTA about the tourism conference that HTA organized, they had solicited CNHA to be one of the sponsors. Right, right. Yeah, that lapse of judgment. So, and they had, they admitted that, yeah, that was probably not the the right thing to do. And so, you know, that just adds to the fire and makes the situation worse.
0: That was part of a conversation we had with Senate Ways and Means Chair Donovan Dela Cruz this morning following a second day of hearings into the procurement controversy over a lucrative tourism contract involving the Hawaii Visitors Convention Bureau and the Council for Native Hawaiian Advancement. Lawmakers in the House are said to be talking about holding their own hearing to learn more about what led to the mishandling of the contract award. statewide member-supported Hawaii Public Radio. It's now time for your backyard quiz.
1: Oni hoa, ole hoa, oni hoa, oni hoa, oni hoa, oni hoa, oni hoa,
0: just about a week and a half until Christmas, so for today's Backyard Quiz, we're browsing through Hawaii's shopping history. First opened in 1849, the Hackfeld Dry Goods Store became one of Hawaii's oldest and largest retail chains. It was locally owned and operated by German immigrant Captain Heinrich Hackfeld. By 1862, the store was rebranded and became B.F. Ellers after Hackfeld's nephew when he became the new owner. Sixty years later, the retailer would undergo a third name change and eventually opened a second location in in Waikiki in 1937. The strength of the store's brand would lead to five more locations on Oahu and several other stores popped up on neighboring islands. The company even expanded to California, Nevada, and Washington in the 1970s and Guam in the 1990s. For today's quiz, can you name this popular shopping chain that started as Hackville Dry Goods Store? Call 808-941-3689 or 877-941-3689 if you know the answer. The first one to get it right gets a reusable HPR tote bag.
5: Support for the Backyard Quiz comes from Neiread Hawaii, which is committed to supporting nonprofits that help to strengthen the community and help underserved families, such as Hawaii Literacy. NeireadHawaii.com Each week, New Dimensions explores the social, political, scientific, environmental, and spiritual frontiers with some of today's foremost social innovators, thinkers, scientists, and creative artists. Hi,
3: I'm Father Francis Tizo, author of Rainbow Body and Resurrection.
5: Next time on New Dimensions, I'll be talking about spiritual attainment and the dissolution of the material body. Beginning Sunday morning at 11. Support for HPR comes from Mobi, a Hawaii wireless company serving the island since 2005, committed to providing personal service to each customer, featuring a locally based customer care team. Learn more at Mobi.com.
0: Our reality check with our partners at Honolulu Civil Beat today features the latest development in the Red Hill water saga. Reporter Christina Jedro joins us with the latest outcry over failure to disclose that traces of a toxic chemical was found by the military in one of its early water samples this year. Good morning, Christina.
2: Morning, Catherine. Thanks for having me.
0: Yes. So, w- w- where did all of this uh, unfold?
2: So uh, just over the weekend, Hawaii News Now reported that um, there were detections of a class of chemicals called PFAS in the drinking water uh, at the Red Hill well last December, so like a year ago. Um, And these chemicals are um, found in a lot of consumer goods, but also in firefighting foam that the Navy uses at the Red Hill fuel facility. Um, So we're just basically finding out now that these chemicals were, you know, part of the the water contamination crisis a year ago when we you know we thought it was bad enough that it was fuel now it's also PFAS.
0: Well and uh, the Board of Water Supply Chief Engineer Ernie Lau was out at a um, a march that also took place this weekend.
2: Yeah um, Ernie Lau is, is you know continually been calling for more information um, and for answers to questions that the the Navy hasn't really provided. Um, As it relates to PFAS, the Navy says that they disclosed the detections to the health department early this year, and the health department knew as early as March. But what's weird is that the health department didn't relay that information to the public. And actually, you know, when I spoke to the state toxicologist uh, in April, so after the health department supposedly knew, she was saying that there were not PFAS detections. Um, and both the Navy and the health department have been saying that AFFF, the firefighting foam, was not involved in last year's fuel leak. So there's a lot of unanswered questions.
0: Yeah, I mean, a lot of head scratching here. I mean, so how did it, did it get in... Uh those test results uh you know and and
2: are they still there right we just don't really know that at this point at least uh the public doesn't and so there was what a town hall meeting where some of this uh, was brought up yeah so last night there was a, a public meeting at moanalua middle school the navy had several officials available to answer questions it quickly uh got kind of out of hand and rowdy. The crowd definitely was passionate and uh, upset, understandably so. Um, and you know, it got to the point of sort of yelling at the panelists and holding up signs and just really venting frustrations. Um, I'm not sure how much new information really came out of the panel last night, um, but you know, they reiterate their, their they say their commitment to transparency and, and making things right. Well, now, uh, uh, I understand also
0: that there was a a Board of Water Supply meeting um, that was held recently?
2: Yes, that also occurred yesterday. Um, Another sort of tense exchange, Uh, regulators were there to provide information, but it was really kind of these technical presentations, and the Board of Water Supply folks were saying, well, can you just answer our questions about you know, what's in the water, and um, the meeting sort of ended when regulators had to go to other meetings at four o'clock. So um, again, like, there's just a lot of questions that need answers, and um, you know, people are concerned about what's in the water. Um, you know, fuel was bad enough, but the kind of silver lining with fuel contamination that I've learned is that it is uh Biodegradable in a way. There's little microbes in the environment that eat fuel and, you know, it will disappear over time to some extent. The horrible thing with firefighting foam and these PFAS chemicals is that they're forever chemicals. So they really don't break down in the environment. They just get moved around and they bioaccumulate. So they move up the food chain, and they can really cause some bad health effects. They're suspected of being linked to cancers, liver damage, developmental delays. So that's why there's so much concern about these chemicals in particular. And, you know,
0: I know we had uh, Ernie Lau and um, Edwin Kawada on, on our show, you know, recently, and they talked about how there were some trace uh, uh, amounts of this that turned up in, in, you know, some of their monitoring wells and that there was a disclosure at that time Uh, But there is growing concern about this because the military still hasn't explained, you know, how that uh, discharge of the firefighting foam
2: happened, right? Right. That's still under investigation. We really don't have any idea what caused it. Um, And I should add also that the EPA... Just this year has uh, announced that PFAS chemicals are more dangerous than they even thought previously. So they've lowered their health advisory level to a very, very small amount, like a fraction of a part per trillion, um, when it used to be much higher.
0: Yeah, and the Board of Water Supply says that uh, there are new rules that kick in. So there's got to be more frequent testing of our water for this chemical as well. So they're in the process, Mm -hmm. I think, of doing that. Mm
2: Yes. Uh, hopefully the detections aren't too high, but uh, fingers crossed.
0: All right. Well, we'll see what we can get, and hopefully the military uh, discloses more of this information. But thank you so much, Christina.
2: Thank you, Catherine.
0: That was reporter Christina Jedra with today's Reality Check. Um, what uh, Read reader story online at civilbeat.org. It felt
4: like springtime, oh, I February morning.
5: Support for HPR comes from the Honolulu Museum of Art. In the new exhibition, Moe Moe Moea, artist Noah Harders transforms found materials into fantastical works. On view now, honolulumuseum.org. Today on The Daily, we go inside the far-right plot to overthrow Germany's government with my colleague, Berlin Bureau Chief Katrin Benhold. I'm Michael Barbaro. That's today on The Daily from The New York Times. Beginning this afternoon at 1.30. Support for HPR comes from Hakuone, committed to building a neighborhood where all are welcome and where Hawaiian culture thrives. Learn more about OHA's plans at a December 14th virtual town hall. Registration at Hakuone.com.
0: For a brief time, residents and visitors on Hawaii Island could witness the majesty of not one, but two volcanic eruptions. But alas, no more. The U.S. Geological Survey confirmed today that both Mauna Loa's recent activity and nearby Kilauea's year-long show have paused. The conversation Savannah Harriman spoke with Hawaiian Volcanoes Observatory geologist Matt Patrick this morning about what it might mean to have both eruptions end at the same time, and when we might see these volcanoes erupt again.
6: Having two simultaneous eruptions, it has happened before. But just in the past week, looking at the data streams, we see that we have seen that the Mauna Loa eruption, the lava flow from that Northeast Rift Zone vent stalled just about two miles short of Saddle Road. And over the past, over the past week, in recent days, basically the fountaining at the vent has basically shut off, indicating that there's not really any lava supply to the vent. And that eruption has has ended. At Kilauea, we've also been watching the lava lake there that's been active for over a year. And in the same week, we saw that basically the lava lake stagnated and eventually crusted over and died. It is interesting that in basically the same week, we had these two simultaneous eruptions come to an end.
3: And is that a coincidence? Do these volcanoes operate entirely independently in their eruptions, or could there be some sort of connection?
6: Yeah, it's a really interesting question. We know from the lava chemistry that the two volcanoes have distinct and separate magma plumbing systems. But we also know from research that because they're neighbors, they can feel the stress of one another. So you can imagine a scenario of the past couple of years when Mauna Loa has been building up pressure to its recent eruption. That added stress may have stressed the Kilauea magma chamber and allowed it to sustain that lava lake eruption. But once the Mauna Loa eruption ensued, that caused a very rapid deflation in the Mauna Loa summit magma chamber. And that may have taken some of that stress off of Kilauea's chamber and allowed it to relax, maybe depressurize it a little bit, basically, and and kind of maybe been the, um, the final point that resulted in this long-term, one-year-long lava lake kind of stagnating.
3: <sighs> If you look at the history of Kilauea over the last 200 years, is it more common for it to be in a state of activity or on a pause?
6: Oh, I think when I looked at the numbers for Kilauea's summit eruption, lava lake activity at the summit, it was something like 51% over the past 200 years. So that would, yeah, put it over half. But in the 1800s to early 1900s, there was over 100 years of continuous, more or less continuous lava lake activity and then numerous rift zone eruptions in the mid-1900s, and then uh, 35 years of eruptive activity on Puao. Yeah, I mean, long-term sustained eruptive activity is just, is kind of classic Kilauea activity.
3: And based on what we understand about these most recent eruptions, as well as historical eruptions, when might we see Mauna Loa and Kilauea erupt again?
6: That's a good question that we can't answer right now. Mauna Loa has been inflating for several years now, and the I guess the question is, how much of that excess pressure did this eruption bleed off? This is something that we're both, that we're all going to be looking at very closely, particularly on Mauna Loa, because of course, the current eruption or the recent eruption of Mauna Loa's Northeast Rift Zone, it did threaten a road, but it was in a relatively, it was in an uninhabited area, so it didn't threaten residential areas. A more challenging hazard scenario for Mauna Loa is, of course, a Southwest Rift Zone eruption where there's more residential areas in close distance to the vents. Now, there's higher hazards in that scenario. From this point on, we're definitely gonna be, obviously continue to keep a very close eye on Mauna Loa. Now for Kilauea, it's interesting because what we've seen over the past couple of years is that it's, it seems to be in this state of caldera refilling. So in 2018, we had the, the very large eruption on the Lower East Rift Zone that drained the summit magma chamber and caused the caldera floor to collapse more than 500 yards created a very large depression, a new depression at the summit. And so what we've seen over the past few years is that basically that depression refilling with these lava lakes that have been active over the past couple of years. So it looks like for Kilauea that we're we're in this kind of caldera refilling phase. It's not, wouldn't be surprising to see that that phase continue with some more lava lake activity at the summit. But of course, Kilauea also has rift zones and increased hazards whenever magma migrates into those rift zones. So that's something that we also have to continue watching to make sure that once the summit pressurizes there's always the possibility that magma can migrate laterally down a rift zone mm. and of course migrating into the east rift zone could bring it closer to residential areas so that's a, that's a potential hazard. There's no signs of that happening right now, but it's something obviously that we'll be watching for.
3: Did this most recent eruption of Mount Loa suggest that we need to implement any more specific points of monitoring that weren't in place? for this last eruption?
6: This response to Mauna Loa was interesting because the last Mauna Loa eruption was almost 40 years ago, so in the 80s. And now we have so many new tools available uh, to monitor the eruption. So it was it was really interesting to see these new tools deployed. We had drones, we had, let's see, laser scanning, rapidly deployable webcams and time-lapse cameras, new geochemical tools to analyze the lava in real time. So. Yeah, we could basically apply those tools very rapidly to gain, to gather new data and really try to understand the eruption better. Of course, there's always ways that we could improve. I'm thinking of things that I did and I could have put some things out sooner or whatnot, but, um, in an eruption response, it's, it's always pretty hectic, you always learn from eruption responses. I will say that 2018 was a very intense eruption response and a lot of the lessons learned from that eruption really helped with this response and that goes for technical and the logistical aspects of it.
3: What do you think, on that note, worked well during this eruption response? And what do you think was a little overwhelming for folks?
6: One of the things I w- helped work on was the webcam live stream. And that's always been a challenge because some of these areas are remote and data connections are tricky, but we did manage to get a live stream up. We did have some connection issues. That's something that obviously is very important to the public and for hazard managers to have a real-time live stream video view of the eruption. So I hope that we can continue with that and continue to improve that that monitoring tool. It, and it obviously gives people a sense, even if they're not on the island, anywhere around the world, a sense of what the activity is like. I think the most challenging thing for the eruption response for us, was the fact that the vent in a very remote area in the northeast rift zone. So you can't drive up to it. We were accessing it entirely by helicopter. It's at almost it's at about eleven thousand feet elevation. So just getting out of the helicopter and uh, grabbing a duffel bag of gear and hiking up a cone can really be pretty exhausting. But yeah, just the fact that this eruption site was isolated, so it was it really depended on helicopter access. That is is totally 180 degrees different than what we saw in 2018 with Lani, which unfortunately was very close to residential areas and road network. And of course, the hazard that obviously brought with it a lot of of new hazards.
3: Well, Matt, I hope you and your colleagues will have the opportunity for a little downtime after these past couple of weeks of activity. I do want to say, though, just because the eruption on both volcanoes, Kilauea and Mauna Loa, has stopped, I assume you and your fellow scientists are not packing it up and going home. What is on the horizon for you folks in terms of continued research on these mountains?
6: Yeah, of course, we're going to continue looking at keeping a very close eye of the data streams for both Kilauea and Mauna Loa, looking to see what's next, you know, when the next eruption will be on each of those respective volcanoes. each one will erupt again. They're very active volcanoes. But now, yeah, now starts the process of compiling the data and trying to understand better about how the Mauna Loa eruption ensued and, you know, it produced a lava flow. And obviously lava flow hazards are a very big factor here on on the island. So we're always trying to improve our knowledge of how lava flows behave and the dynamics of lava flows. And this eruption provided a lot of new data for that.
3: I'm curious, in the field of volcanology, is the question of mitigating hazard from lava flows or pyroclastic flows, but hazard in general, the foremost research question? Or is there something besides that that the field of volcanology is fundamentally trying to figure out?
6: I think the main charge in volcanology is mitigating hazard. There is still a lot of work that's done that doesn't appear on the surface to be directly related to that. A lot of that is an attempt to understand how volcanoes work in a broad sense, to have a deeper understanding how they work, to then inform those kind of more urgent questions about about hazards. Yeah, ultimately, I think everyone working in the field of volcanology is working towards the same goal to to mitigate hazards.
3: Well, Matt, thank you again so much. I do appreciate you taking the time this morning. Okay, thank you. That was Hawaiian Volcanoes Observatory geologists
0: Matt Patrick and HPR Savannah Harriman-Pote. They were talking about the recent pause in volcanic activity at both Mauna Loa and Kilauea. The USGS is still monitoring Mauna Loa closely, uh, but uh, it does not expect any resurgence of lava at this time. The Hawaii County Civil Defense Agency said that the viewing route on Old Saddle Road set up for Mauna Loa onlookers will reduce its hours to 4pm to midnight, starting Wednesday, then it will shut down permanently at midnight on Thursday. And now it's time for your backyard quiz answer. Earlier, we asked you about the history of a beloved shopping haven for island shoppers that started as the Hackfeld Dry Goods Store. Founded in 1849 by German immigrant Captain Heinrich Hackfeld, the store focused on stocking its shelves with locally made products, primarily clothing. When uh, his nephew took over the store, the, uh, the company, the store became B.F. Ellers. Uh, The store was rebranded again in 1918 to reflect a spirit of patriotism. It was under this new moniker that a second Waikiki location was opened, and as its popularity grew more, Oahu stores were added, and a few on the neighbor islands too. During the 1970s, locations were built in California, Nevada, and Washington. There was even a shop in Guam. However, the store's successful run ended when it declared bankruptcy in 2001 if you're a local fashionista you know we're talking about the beloved Liberty House which is the answer to today's backyard quiz we had lots of calls on this one our winner today Rick from Pearl City uh, the company was eventually bought out by Macy's that's today's quiz if you have an idea for one send it to Talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org
5: Support for HPR comes from Haleakalā Ranch with a legacy of livestock, conservation and land stewardship since 1888, working to restore, maintain and preserve the open vistas and natural beauty of Maui. More at HaleakalāRanch.com.
7: Parisians have embraced e-bikes and scooters. Some 400,000 rides are taken through the city every month. A quick
8: way to zip around, but with a serious downside.
2: It's very dangerous. There are a lot
1: of accidents. In Paris, it's like uh, the bordel, we said.
8: Bordel, a big
7: mess. The city says rental companies need to improve safety or face an all-out ban on e-bikes and
5: scooters. It's on the world. Beginning this afternoon at 1.00. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from Aloha United Way with Bank of Hawaii Foundation presenting Alice in Hawaii 2022, Facts and Figures. Downloads and more information at auw.org.
0: Mauna Loa, erupting after a nearly 40-year slumber, has been an exciting time for longtime backcountry hiker Kavika Singson. The native Hawaiian grew up on Hawaii Island's Hamakua coast, and he graduated from Honoka'a High School in 1981. He's a retired Army combat engineer who spent all of his enlistment in Germany before returning home. Today, he spends much of his free time enjoying the Big Island's wide open spaces. He frequently posts videos of his adventures around the island on social media, sharing some unique and remote sites with his audience. The Conversations Russell Subiano sat down with Sing Sun to talk about his relationship with Mauna Loa.
7: So the area that I'm standing in right now is called Humu'ula. Back in 1935, when Mauna Loa erupted, the lava flow came down the slopes of Mount Loa and headed in the same path that today's flow is is on. How long
8: have you been hiking Mount Loa? Oh,
7: ever since I got out of the military. I got back to the Big Island in 1990, 91, and ever since then I've been holo holo around the Big Island. And Mauna Loa has been my destination many times
8: to the summit. I can tell from a lot of your videos that you you do a lot of hiking in different areas, but yes. a lot of them seem to be in places that have lava or are lava-related. What do you love so much about these backcountry hikes?
7: The peacefulness, the serenity, and uh, basically, that's my happy place. Once you find your happy place, basically, essentially, I go there as often as I can because basically, that's my medicine. That's where uh, I find most peace. So that's why I go there so
8: often. I think that's probably common for a lot of people, and, and I know for myself, you know, living on Oahu, you know, just the amount of people here and the amount of busyness, my getaway is always coming back home to the Big Island. And so I imagine probably similar similar feel for you, right?
7: Absolutely, same thing, because when I got out of the military, I was going to either live in Oahu or live on the Big Island. I stayed in Oahu for about a month. After about a month, I said, no, I, I can't do it. And I, mm-hmm. I need my own space. And up here, it's so easy to find your own space. In Oahu, it's very difficult because like you said, the amount of people there. Mm-hmm. So whenever I go there, I'm a couple of days and I'm always really longing to go back to the Big Island.
8: The last time you were there up on the summit of Mauna Loa before the eruption on the 27th, did you get the sense that something spectacular was going to happen? When was the last time you hiked Mauna Loa? Well, I know
7: it was, uh, maybe just several months before the actual eruption. But every time I do go up there, the, I can feel the energy of the mountain. If you put, put my hand down on the ground, uh, as I described in some of my videos, the mountain literally is vibrating. Maybe some people are more sensitive to it than others. Some people won't notice it, but being the type of person that I am, I notice a lot of the little things, even the stuff that you cannot see, but you can feel deep within you. So that's how it is when I go up there. Maybe that's why I'm drawn to this era so much, because I'm a little bit more sensitive to these things, being that I'm out there so much. And when I'm out there, I'm extremely open-minded, open-hearted. So I feel everything. Not everything, but I feel a lot of things that a lot of people might brush off. I feel it, and that's why I gravitate toward this era because, you know, it's almost like the land, you the, the conscious level that we're on is, is so similar that I can relate to some people who are going to say that's just a mountain, but to me it's not just a mountain because I related to that mountain on a different level. That's why I go there so often. It's incredible. I don't have the vocabulary to basically describe what I feel.
8: Can you describe... Moku Aveo Veo crater, what it looked like the last time you were up there before the eruption?
7: Yes, it was. it's a fairly large crater. And when I go up, I usually go down into the crater, and that's where the energy seems to be the strongest. The vibration it seems to be more prevalent than other parts of the mountain. And a lot of times I'll just sit there. I even made a video of me running my 100-yard dash up there, which is not easy to do. Okay, 100 yards. Like always, I hope I don't fall flat on my face because of the oxygen, the lack of oxygen Jen up here. Okay, 100 yards. You guys ready? I'm not ready, but I'm gonna do it anyway. I'm ready as I'll ever be. Woo! okay, my gang, ready? 100 yards, ready? Please don't let me fall flat on my face. Sit. So sometimes, a lot of times I go there and then I just sit nothing but sit and open my mind and open my heart. I take my shoes off. I ground myself up there and the energy just, just flows. It's, it's incredible. And you can do that, kind of do that anywhere else in the road. So you don't you know, go to the summit of the largest active volcano on this planet.
8: I've watched a handful of your most recent videos and I don't want you to give away any specific locations cause I don't want anyone else trying to find these, but you posted a video recently of your hikes where you were able to locate some of the bombs that were dropped on the 1935 Humu'ula lava flow. Can you yes. talk a little bit about that, how you how you came across them?
7: As I said, I love to hike, and I, sometimes I'll just pick a spot. I can essentially look at the lava field, the terrain. I already know before I even go there if it's going to be a good spot or not, just by looking at the lava. So mm-hmm. that's what I do. And uh, I'm always fascinated with a little bit of history, and I knew about the bombing in 1935. So I did a video a while ago about the bombage and the history and why the bombed it and what happened to the guys who actually bombed the flow and how it came to be. So I knew about this. So one day I was hiking up Mauna Loa. I parked and I sit down and I look I look at all the terrains. And I've seen this one location that piqued my interest. I don't know why, but it did. So I went there. And hiking Mauna Loa is no easy task. It's extremely dangerous, very dangerous because of the type of lava and the cavern, the lava tubes that's underneath the ground. See, the Big Island of Hawaii has the largest, longest, and deepest lava tube system in the world. So there's lava tubes all over the place, and a lot of it is very brittle. You can step on it, and you go right through. That's why it's extremely dangerous, and I'm fairly confident that no one else will go where I went because of the, the danger that's involved to get into the bombs. But anyway, I was hiking to my pinpointed location, and uh, as I was hiking, I came across bomb craters, impact craters. And I thought, hmm. Then I came upon fragments of metal shards. Then my interest started to peak. Okay, okay. So I kept following this particular flow. And lo and behold, I see the tail end of this bomb sticking out of the lava. And I immediately knew what it was. So being that the tail end of the bomb was sticking out of the lava, I thought, I wonder if there's a lava tube around here with a front end. So right around the corner, there's a little hole, a little lava tube. I went in there and sure enough, I looked on the ceiling, the front end of the bomb was sticking in the ceiling. All right, I'm in this little lobby, very small, and I came across this. What is that? That is a unexploded bomb that was dropped from an airplane and it penetrated the top of the lava and uh, apparently it didn't explode and it's stuck in the ceiling. Wow. Yeah, and this is like, a, I think it's like a 600-pound bomb. You know? It sat there for, at that point, it was 78 years. I was a little bit taken aback and happy at the same time because I knew the history of it. So as curious as I am, you know, I got up, I went and I took some photos, some video, because I document this what everything that I do. And I know no one else knows where this particular bomb is because it's extremely remote and extremely dangerous just to get to. I you know I did my thing, took some photos, videos, and then I went back, came back home, and I, uh, I thought, what am I going to do with this information? Yeah, I got to notify the authorities first. Mm-hmm. So I did. I called DLNR. I, I met them up there, and I told them where you can't really see it from the from the road, but I gave them the GPS coordinates, and then after that. I was free of the burden of knowing about the bombs are without telling the authorities. Now, as far as I'm concerned, I was free to share it on social media. A lot of places I go to, I try not to share the location as much as possible for the very reason that you said. So, and then, I, you know, I went back actually a year later to see if anything was done with the bombs. And we're still there because I found out that it was, uh, it was inert. It was out in the 70s, I believe.
8: Okay, that's good to so, know. And, you know, there's been people busted for trying to hike to get closer to the eruption and the lava flow. Mm-hmm. Can you talk a little bit more about the kind of danger this poses for people, especially those that aren't familiar with the area?
7: Well, from my experience of hiking through a lava flow, it can be dangerous. But I understand the county's point of view it's not as dangerous as it them out to be because when you say lava flow flows in uh, Hawaii Volcanoes National Park, they will allow you to get close up to lava. I've seen thousands of people do that. As soon as they leave the jurisdiction of the national park, it becomes the jurisdiction of the state. The state, in my opinion, becomes overprotective, anal to the point where they not let people go to the lava flow. Now, how I see it is, as far as the culture goes, the Hawaiian culture, we've been living with volcanoes the entirety of our lives. So to limit, especially like me, that's my spiritual place. When I hike in the mountains, when I run, that's my happy place. It's, I get spiritual awakenings when I go there. Uh, to stop me from going there, I Personally, I get offended because I know what I'm doing. And it's like when people go to church, they worship to their God. When the Hawaiians make offering, I do the same thing in my own way. I'm very cautious. I know what I'm doing. So when they say uh, you cannot go there, I get upset because the joy and happiness, the spiritual enlightenment that I personally receive when I go to these places. But again, I can understand the safety aspect. You know, so I usually just keep my mouth shut and, like, I run in very, like, it is what it is. I mean, you know, you kind of have it your way all the time. But as far as this particular flow, no, I haven't been out there, and I will not go to the forefront because it's too visible. And other people might see me out there for that very reason, I don't go there. I don't want to get in really care with the authorities, you know, but I also find that need or yearning to pay my respects in my own way, my covictal way.
8: For someone like you who has hiked Mauna Loa and has history with lava fields. I know you recently rescued a dog that had fallen into a lava crevasse. Yes. What does this Mauna Loa eruption mean to you? Do you have this sense of wonder? Are you excited about it? Or does it worry you a little bit?
7: Personally for me, I'm not great at all. Wonderment, excitement, that's my thats my home. She's been here, you know, and all my ancestors have been here through her, you know, and we've been in, on, and around her. She. Dictates what happens. We dictate what happens to a point. As far as our personal concern, I know in Manolo, they say Manolo was when it erupts. I mean, it erupt a cataclysmic explosion, and you have to leave. I wouldn't leave. I just die. With, I, I die here on the mountain in the volcano because that's my happy place. So, as far as my personal safety and concern, if that's the way it is, I would. I would go. I'll be so happy with it. I'll be cool with it. You know, it, it's not a big thing because uh, at some point we all have to walk through that door, yeah, to the other side. So if something like that should happen for me, you know, it is good. Because, like I said earlier, that's my happy place. And what more beautiful thing would be that if you die in your happy place?
8: Well, right on. Thank you so much for your time, Kavika. I really enjoyed talking to you. Thank you so much. I appreciate it.
0: That was Big Island resident and backcountry hiker Kaviko Singson talking with HPR's Russell Subiono about his experiences hiking in and around the Loa area. Singson made headlines earlier this year when he rescued a dog that had been trapped in a lava crevice in the Puna area for several days. We'll have links to his videos on the conversation page of our website, Hawaiipublicradio.org, later today. <laughs> Well, that wraps it up for us today. Tomorrow, we look at the next steps for the Department of Hawaiian Homelands after former Honolulu City Council member Ikaika Anderson is tapped to lead the office. Got feedback for us? Share your comments about what you heard by calling your talk Talkback line, 808-792-8217. Email us at talkback at org. You can also find the Conversation podcast on Spotify, Apple, or anywhere you tune in. I'm Catherine Cruz. Join us tomorrow for more of the conversation.